Truth Espresso, episode 113. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, Truth Espresso fans, listeners, and lurkers. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, coming at you with another episode in our series on marriage. And we're doing a little mini-series within our series, covering and reviewing and criticizing the book Created to Be His Helpmeet by Debbie Pearl. And that started last week, last episode, so if you haven't caught up with last episode. I highly recommend it because this is a fun ride through a very interesting book and to continue discussing created to be his helpmeet with me is my sweet and beautiful wife Chelsea. So Chelsea welcome back to Truth Espresso. Hi babe and thank you for including me in this fun discussion. Yeah. And I hope you're having fun with me talking about this book and looking at some of the issues with it. So, we want to talk a little bit about, first, Debbie Pearl's explanation of the word helpmeet as it's found in the Bible. Sure. (laughs) So, looking on page 24 of Created to Be His Helpmeet, Debbie Pearl makes note in a little box here about the two words in the King James Version, help meet. And she seems to think that that translation has its own particular meaning, but she does correctly note that it translates one Hebrew word, Isaiah. She correctly notes that it's found 21 times in the Hebrew Bible. And now it's important, I think, to look at the Hebrew Bible here because uh, Debbie does mention that it's translated, Isaiah is translated in Genesis 2.18 and Genesis 20 as helpmeet when referring to God creating Eve for Adam. She was created to be his helpmeet, according to the title of the book. But what about all the other places, the other 19 places where this word Isaiah appears in the Bible? And Debbie doesn't really touch that much. And I think that that it does help us to understand because this is the whole premise, the whole title of her book, created to be his helpmeet or his Isaiah. And so, sweetheart, what do you think? Um, do you think the other occurrences of Isaiah for help or helpmeet kind of portray this idea of a wife being like a, a servant? Or as we looked at the last episode, especially for someone like Mr. Command Man, that she's got to wait on him hand and foot and do menial tasks and pick up uh, spilled trash. <laughs> do you think that's what help Isaiah is going to be in all the other verses. Oh, 
Yes, I'm sure women are hopefully maybe like me. <laughs> and every time we read Genesis or hear a message about the creation account and how God made Eve to be Adam's help me, just feel like you want to cringe because you're like, oh boy, here it comes. We're like a doormat and, you know, we're going to get the lecture of how we need to um, just be quiet. And uh, yeah, like you mentioned, a servant to her husband. And I am pretty sure that's not what God is meaning in those verses. And I think you're right that we need to look at all the different instances that this word appears and looking at how women are respected and described throughout the whole Bible, not just in the account of creation. Yeah, a lot of extrapolation, a lot of eisegesis, a lot of reading into things about uh, women in the Bible based on the analogy of Eve created for Adam here. But what are the occurrences of Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible? As Debbie noted, but didn't really get into, how are they used in context? What do they mean? Well, besides Genesis chapter 2, we see in Exodus 18.4 that Isaiah is used to mean help uh, and deliverance from the sword of Pharaoh. Deuteronomy 33.7 is referring to being an Isaiah to deliver from enemies. Deuteronomy 33.26 is referring to God being a helper with his excellency on the sky. Deuteronomy 33.29, the shield of thy Isaiah, who is the sword of thy excellency, and thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee. Psalm 20, verse 2, the psalmist says to God, send the Isaiah from the sanctuary, strengthen thee out of Zion, strength, deliverance from the sword, from enemies. Psalm 33, 20, God is our Isaiah and our shield. Psalm 75, O God, thou art my Isaiah and my deliverer. Psalm 89, 19, I have laid Isaiah upon one that is mighty. Psalm 115.9, he is our Isaiah and their shield. 115 verse 10, the next verse, he is their Isaiah and their shield. And the next verse, he is their Isaiah and their shield. Psalm 121.1, I look unto the hills from whence comes my Isaiah verse 2, my Isaiah cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. Psalm 124, verse 8, our Isaiah is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 146, verse 5, Jacob's Isaiah, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Uh, Isaiah 30, verse 5, the people were ashamed not to profit or be an Isaiah. But a shame and a reproach, Ezekiel 12, verse 14, God would scatter the people to every wind, and he would defeat those who are to try to Isaiah Israel. Daniel 11, verse 34, that those who would fall would give a little Isaiah, but many shall cleave with flatteries. And finally, Hosea 13, verse 9, that Israel has destroyed itself, but in me is thine or God's Isaiah. 
<laughs> so it sounds to me that Isaiah there is not a servant, <laughs> but the power of a king, the power of a mighty warrior, the power of God himself who created heaven and earth, delivering the warriors of Israel from their enemies. And so this help meet, you know, the same word Isaiah there, that God created Eve to be the Isaiah for Adam, it sounds like he's giving her power and strength. It doesn't sound like she's supposed to do menial tasks and wait on Adam hand and foot, but to give really the divine power of God to help him in his need. <laughs> yes, and I think that picture is really evident in Proverbs 31 and also a common passage to kind of describe what a woman can work towards being, I think, Proverbs 31 is, I know we've talked about this before, like maybe multiple women that Lemuel's mom is pointing out to him, like, okay, look at this woman, she has these attributes, and this woman, she has these attributes, these are things you want to look for in a woman, and these are things that we can, um, with God's help, strive for as being a woman as well. But in verse 25, it says, strength and honor are her clothing. Mm. So that is not a picture of what most people interpret Genesis 2 as being this underling yes underling (laughs) thank you like servant type of person that's weak and can't say anything or do anything herself but strength and honor her clothing that means in all of proverbs 31 just showing how she's preparing for her household she's protecting her household like Mm. i don't know i just think that there's a lot of depth to the woman and that when people take genesis 2 out of context and just say that her only role is this help meet that that's really again devaluing women and what we were created to be yeah the proverbs 31 woman has strength in her arms she does she could do labor she she's business savvy she goes and purchases a field she's you know talks with uh, people to help out her husband with his reputation and stuff but the proverbs 31 woman is not someone behind the scenes being an underling as we said the proverbs 31 woman really has influence really has authority really has strength and honors you said sweetheart <laughs> and definitely the hebrew word isaiah there i did you know i didn't have to introduce a lot of interpretation there i just read the parts of the verses where it was used it's quite obvious so in the case of genesis chapter 2 verses 18 and 20 where eve is said to be a help meet for adam i don't think it carries a totally different meaning from the divine power strength and deliverance that the same word is used 19 other times in the hebrew bible now this next point here The Way to a Heavenly Marriage, as Debbie contends through her book, lies squarely in the lap of the wife. Now, sweetheart, we talked about that a marriage is all about two. The two become one flesh. But it seems like Debbie thinks that the key to having a heavenly marriage lies entirely in the lap of a wife. Not the husband, just the wife. And so we see that illustrated many times in this book, but here's an early prime example. So pages 28 through 32 has the account of a letter 
a woman named Beth wrote a letter to Debbie Pearl for advice on how to deal with her husband who is flirting with a secretary at work. So Debbie's uh, advice to Beth begins with laying all of the responsibility for making this marriage work on the wife. Now, understandably, this is a wife writing to wives, and so you'd expect to say, here's what you should do. But Debbie seems to act like everything is all up to the wife and the wife's responsibility for what her husband does. So, sweetheart, what, what does Debbie say? So she says, quote, face it, you have a competitor. She is your rival, the enemy of your heart's desire. <laughs> uh, so that's on page 29 there. And so Debbie's telling Beth here that the secretary is a competitor for her husband. Um, yeah, like, do, do we see that in the Bible? Is that how we're, wives are to think of women taking the heart of her husband away as just a competitor? So Debbie says earlier here, right at the beginning of a reply to Beth, she says, quote, God has provided for your husband's complete sanctification and deliverance from temptation through you, his wife, unquote. So <laughs> Debbie is like basically putting all responsibility for the husband's actions on the wife. So, you know, if the husband does something wrong, if he's unfaithful to his wife, somehow Debbie seems to act that it's the wife's fault. And we see it later on in the book, examples of David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Oh, it was Bathsheba's fault. And so on and so forth. You know, everything, it's the wife's fault. And how is it the wife's fault, according to Debbie? Basically, because the wife has to constantly keep her husband attracted to her, and if he shows attraction to some other woman, it's because the wife is not being attractive enough, not keeping up on keeping the husband paying attention to her, so it's her fault and not his fault, according to Debbie, and I see nothing biblical about that. So according to Debbie, how does this desperate wife win the battle against the secretary? She says, quote, make yourself more attractive than the secretary. You can win if you are willing to lose your pride, unquote, on page 30. That's probably not how I would think to describe the situation. You know, what do you think, sweetheart? I can't even imagine how frustrating this is to you, babe. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like some of these just make me feel like I'm at a loss of words to even describe how frustrating that is. Putting that pressure on the wife and saying that, okay, now she needs to compete with the secretary to win her husband's affection back. And yeah, that is not how we act or respond in the situations according to God's word. And I think God says that beauty is fleeting, fleeting yeah. and charm is deceitful. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not even sure why she's saying like the wife needs to, you know, put on these charms and just focus on the beauty and the flirtatious part. Mm -hmm. And that's going to win her husband back. Okay, her husband has a heart issue, a mm -hmm. sin issue, yes. 
and just flirting and trying to compete with the secretary is not addressing that heart sinful issue that's actually kind of allowing it to go even further and I know you'll talk about that a little bit (laughs) more here too but I mean, as a wife, that puts so much pressure on, like, as women to be like, okay, we constantly have to make sure we're attracted to our husbands so they don't fall into sin. Because, mm. oh, no, if they start looking to someone else, then we're not being attractive enough. And that is so unrealistic. Oh, yes. <laughs> just, yeah, and that, very yeah. frustrating. Yes, exactly. And it's like, okay, so... At any time, a husband can just start to be unfaithful, to go into sin, and somehow it's because the wife wasn't, you know, as you said, being attractive enough. Like, what if she hasn't been doing anything different? Like, so, you know, there's no accountability here for a husband. It's just what frustrates me as a man is that the suggestion that men are just so base or that we're expecting them to just be so utterly base, like just (laughs) grunting apes. That just seems like such an insult to men. And as a man, I object to this. I say men need to be more responsible as the Bible clearly says, you know, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. A man is capable of, as the Apostle Paul says, you know, possessing his vessel. (laughs) It talks about their body is a temple of God and everyone possess his vessel (laughs) with honor. Men are capable of that. They don't have to be led around like mindless drones and grunting apes, as I said, (laughs) that are just totally incapable of controlling their base desires. And and, and it's all up to the wife to just lure them over to her side as opposed to some other woman's side. Like, that's, that's just ridiculous ridiculous and unbiblical and all this responsibility falls on the wife and yet along with that somehow she has all the power to restore the marriage and with what as debbie explains her smile and her looks so what's the problem with this solution how does this solution win the husband away from the secretary? Because to me, it sounds like a win-win for a husband thinking this way. Um, he may not be aware that his wife has a problem with his sin if she is just showing more affection toward him. Because Debbie constantly tells wives in this book you can't be your husband's conscience and you don't confront him with his sin. And so somehow she's supposed to win him over by indirect actions and trying to be more attractive than the secretary and so on. But to me, it's like if a husband's doing this and he's getting kicks out of uh, a competitor, you know, the the secretary at work, and then his doing that somehow triggers his wife to start acting happier and cuter toward him. It's like, hey, so the more I flirt with this other woman, the more my wife flirts with me. Man, I wish I started doing this earlier. (laughs) I mean, if he's already willing to add a second woman to his life because of flirting, what makes us think he's willing to drop a second woman because of flirting? 
<laughs> Maybe she succeeds in getting more attention from him, but would flirting alone convert him back to proper monogamy? If doing the wrong thing gets him greater attention from his wife, it would seem to make sense, to me anyway, that he would keep doing the wrong thing. You know, what a way to subsidize wrongdoing. It's like a stimulus for him to keep doing the wrong thing. Mm. I don't see how this is supposed to work correctly, but in the imagination of Debbie Pearl. Well, that reminds me of Proverbs twenty seven seventeen, where it's talking about that iron sharpeneth iron hmm. and just how the husband and wife when you're looking at marriage as that team mm-hmm. you're sharpening each other with honesty like of course there's ways to confront sin <laughs> or talk about you know issues and stuff with your spouse kind of when we were talking about conflicts a couple weeks ago there are appropriate ways to discuss that But if you're just going to keep allowing sin in your spouse's life and not address it, then you're not sharpening each other. You're not helping each other. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's not loving at all to your spouse to just sit back and let them continue to destroy their life and destroy (laughs) their family's life because, oh, how dare you say anything about sin Mm. as a wife? To me, that's totally against the Bible. And where is the accountability? Like, okay, if all have sinned, we all need Christ's blood (laughs) and forgiveness. How is it that our husbands don't need that? And somehow the wives are totally responsible for this man sinning. Then it just does not make sense and does not go in according to God's word. And I think that is one of my frustrations with Mm. this book is that Debbie Pearl uses a lot of Bible verses in here and she twists them to help Mm. prove her point that she's trying to make. So it makes you as a woman feel like, oh my goodness, okay, she used a Bible verse. I'm doing it wrong. Mm. I need to listen to what she's saying. Yeah. And that's not correct. (laughs) And I think it's hard when you're getting ready to be married or you are married or there are struggles going on in your marriage and you're trying to find a book or Mm. a place to turn to to get that advice or that counsel and you come upon books like this or, I mean, there's a lot of books that Mm. have (laughs) things in there that are not helpful and can actually be more damaging. But I remember talking to a couple ladies in our church a few weeks ago about this with parenting Mm. and trying to figure out, okay, what do you go to? Because when you read some of these books, it makes you feel like you're a failure. Mm. Oh my goodness. I cannot be a good wife. I cannot be a good mom. And I don't think that's how God wants us to view ourselves. And these godly women I'm thankful for, they're like, look to God's word because God's word is what will direct you the best Mm. and prayer. And so I think that for any marriage and husband and wife, like we talked about earlier with conflict resolution, praying together, studying Mm. God's word together. I think those are the best tools that we have for a marriage and just learning about each other. So learning what you find attractive Mm. might be different from someone else. So instead Mm. of taking this book and saying like, oh, okay, now my husband needs to go take the trash out and (laughs) dump trash everywhere (laughs) because that's what he'll like. 
No, each man, each woman is different. So having that open discussion with each other Mm -hmm. to learn what attracts you to each other, I think is just kind of keeps that flame going, I guess. Yes, for sure. There doesn't seem to be much two-ness and togetherness in this book. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's almost like the wife becomes a detective trying to solve something and it's her fault. The Bible knows nothing about blaming one person for the actions of another especially when it comes to marriage you know the bible says husbands do this wives do this there's no concept of if he does this it's because you wife didn't do this right you know that's ridiculous you know a man is capable and responsible for his own actions period and like, I, I can't even describe how, you know, as you said, how frustrating this is. I know it's frustrating as a woman to see this, like, burden that Debbie Pearl puts on the wife. But then on the flip side, it also just insults men and it shifts blame for his actions on the wife and also gives her the power to manipulate men the description of men throughout this book, as I said before, it's like they're apes. <laughs> mm. They're all brawn and no brain. And, and they, you know, they need to be led around by a wife, but she needs to take responsibility for his misdeeds. And that is totally unbiblical. So if you think about the account in Genesis when Adam and Eve fell into sin mm. in the garden. Yes. That's totally the opposite of what <laughs> Debbie Pearl's yeah. saying in her book. Adam blamed Eve. And from what we could see, that wasn't just God thinking, well, yeah, you know, Adam gave an excuse. It's obvious from the text that Adam was trying to excuse his bad behavior by saying, the woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate and... Yet God cursed the man with having to work and labor, and God held each of them accountable for what their involvement was, and they each had their own curse, and just as Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent had its part, and God cursed the serpent too, but God levied out justice according to each party's involvement. God did not just put the blame of Adam's sin on Eve. (laughs) And since Debbie Pearl likes to use Adam and Eve as an example here of how God created a wife to be the help me, why don't we see, you know, the fall there as an example. You don't blame the woman for the misdeeds of the man. And I think part of that scene in the garden with Adam and Eve, too, is that it shows how women are easily deceived. Like Eve was deceived by the serpent. Mm. And that's kind of where I see the role of the husband being Mm. the head of the wife. Is that (laughs) the husband is a protector. And, you know, where was Adam when Satan was talking to Eve? Like he could have been there protecting her and helping her say like, wait, no, what are we doing? We shouldn't be listening to this. So I see like in some ways the husband being if there is someone that's a little more responsible, the husband may be a little more responsible because he's the head and the Mm. protector. And I see the pearls like reversing that Mm. and putting 
I mean, even though she keeps saying throughout her book that the woman's role is beneath the husband, but she keeps putting so much burden and responsibility on the wife that it almost makes it seem like the wife is the head in some ways. Yeah, she's know. kind of the secret head, the be- uh, the head behind the scenes. The man mm-hmm. is the figurehead there, but the wife is kind of pushing the buttons and pulling the levers, but kind of in a sick, demented way of having her being, a, uh, you know, having to put up with being abused as, because folks it gets worse from here (laughs) okay so does a woman have to obey her husband in everything like as in absolutely everything is that what the bible means i mean debbie pearl quotes the verse saying you know women wives submit to your husbands in everything but context dictates what that means and We see examples in pages 245 to 246. Here's an example, and and this actually demonstrates a contradiction in the book that I found. A woman named Diana was distressed that her husband wanted her to use birth control. She realized that many methods are abortifacients and, as she says, quote, cause murder, unquote. Eventually, the husband left her to raise their current children on her own because he didn't want more children, but he expected her to use birth control. She wouldn't put up with that because she knew it was wrong, and so he left her. And she's struggling financially, trying to deal with raising their children, and she asks Debbie, what should I do? And Debbie responds by saying, quote, when a woman takes what she believes is the high ground as Eve did, and disobeys her husband, and here we have in bold, that woman is blaspheming, speaking evil of the word of God. There is no command in scripture concerning family size, only the strong promise of God to bless the man whose quiver is full of children. God clearly states that the man is the head and that a woman is to submit, in bold, to her own husband, unquote. This is page 247. And this is in response to Diana saying about birth control that it can cause murder. But I don't know if Debbie just glossed over that or that maybe she doesn't have a healthy, consistent pro-life view of the child in the womb, or whatever the case here, but she's clearly saying that the wife was to submit to the husband in taking birth control. Uh, This advice, if consistent here, because, you know, it, it, it does cause murder, This advice would contradict the advice toward the end of the book that provides the slim exceptions, such as she says on page 258 that the husband, quote, his sinful actions may bring death to her or the children, unquote. That's an example of when she can put her foot down. But what about birth control? You mean she's supposed to submit to her husband in that, and that can kill children? Does Debbie not believe in... Is she not anti-abortion here? I don't know. (laughs) The Bible does allow defiance of authority to save babies, and I would think that that would include birth control. We have an example of the in the Bible of women disobeying the authority because she Debbie makes the comparison between a woman obeying her husband and people obeying governmental authorities over them. Exodus one seventeen. 
But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the man-children alive. So King Pharaoh was disturbed that the Israelites were growing too many, and so he wanted to kill the male children to keep the Israelites in bondage. But the midwives disobeyed the authority there and saved the children alive. And so I think that would be something that Diana here would be perfectly justified in disobeying her husband's command to take birth control. Um, Acts 5.29, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So the Ten Commandments still apply. They apply to both husband and wife, and the wife is under the law of Christ over and above any law of her husband. So why is it that the pearls say that the law of God is what governs us? Why is it that the law of the husband could somehow supersede the law of God in some instances here? (laughs) I just think that scenario is very disheartening because this woman like obviously stands up for what she believes in and what is in accordance to God's word about protecting human life you want to talk about the way God designed women here you go (laughs) yeah and so yeah she's standing up for her you know future unborn children by not Mm. taking the birth control and consequently her husband leaves her And then she has Debbie Pearl, like, getting on her case and saying, like, she was in the wrong. So it's, like, this poor woman, like, I just can't imagine Mm. because, I mean, she's standing up for what's right. And Mm. then she has no control if her husband is going to make that choice to leave then that is not that woman's fault or anything she could have done differently. And I think that woman was very brave and courageous to stand Mm -hmm. her ground for that. And I pray that someday she will find peace and (laughs) hope in that she did do the right thing in that situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Makes your blood boil, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And folks, it gets worse. (laughs) Welcome to the Creation Science for Kids show, where we learn about Jesus, our creator, and his amazing world. Hi, I'm Sherry Fields, your host, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Timothy. Creation Science, the number four kids.com to let your friends know about this podcast and ministry and to connect with all the rest of the things we do with the podcast, stop by the web address I got just for you, CS4KS, the initials of the show, dot com, and find out how to send us your own recording. Write us an Apple Podcast review, drop us a note, become a monthly supporter, and see the heart of why this ministry is so important. Okay, so we move on to the three types of men. <laughs> yeah. And so Debbie Pearl categorizes all men into three types. So number one is Mr. Command Man. And this uh, Debbie describes as kind of 
being most descriptive of her own husband, and why am I not surprised? <laughs> um, number two is Mr. Visionary, and, you know, she describes that that's kind of also her husband there. And then number three is Mr. Steady, which seems the way she describes him as kind of a more of a nice guy, and he seems to get the short end of the stick in this book. You know, he's not as exciting and stuff as command and visionary um i think she even uses the word mediocre oh yeah like he yeah like you think the way this type of man is that maybe this guy is more maturity and stuff but she seems to want to laugh at him and then have to throw a, a few bones of yeah there's some good with this mr steady i guess but she seems to have her favoritism toward the command and conquer type personalities so, I want to pick on the Mr. Command Man because she describes him like this on page 77 in the book. Quote, They are known for expecting their wives to wait on them hand and foot. A command man does not want his wife involved in any project that prevents her from serving him. If you are blessed... <laughs> to be married to a strong, forceful, bossy man as I am, then it is very important for you to learn how to make an appeal without challenging his authority, unquote. Um, <laughs> blessed to be married to a forceful, bossy man. And they're known for expecting their wives to wait on them hand and foot. Uh, to me, this is a self-centered, conceited example of immaturity. This is not merely a type of man. It is at best a character flaw that is unbiblical and needs to be overcome. Uh, it is possible to be a strong leader without being arrogant and inconsiderate of your wife. In this description <laughs> of a man, too, is totally opposite of what we've been talking about mm. in a marriage where you're on a team yes. and you're working together because this type of man is clearly like a controlling person and kind of just leaves his wife trailing behind. So I don't see it as being that one flesh mm. that the Bible <laughs> <Yeah>. describes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it sounds like the one flesh is just his flesh, you know. <laughs> All he cares about is his flesh and his big grand scheme of pride and she gets to do all the dirty work. In fact, she says, quote, Mr. Command will not take the trash out as a general rule and he will not clean up the mess at the trash area. He may organize and command someone else to do it, unquote. So, sound familiar? It sounds like she's speaking more from experience about her own Mr. Command, as she admits, with her trash story, although he did like to take the trash out only insofar as he could demonstrate his strength to hoist it into the dumpster, but it was beneath him to pick up any mess that he created. I, I, I still can't get over that example and how that's supposed to make us think that it's so cute or that, you know... Oh, this is the male, the lofty description of the male ego, you know, like, uh, mm. <laughs> and somehow that scenario like leads to them oh, like yeah. being intimate. It's like, I have no idea how that <laughs> yeah. works out. You, know, you want a playmate, 
sweetheart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, you know what I got to say about this from the Bible, of this Mr. Command? Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He was their master, and he told them all to do likewise. Jesus didn't assess his disciples and figure out which are Mr. Command men, which someone like Peter, we might think of him as a Mr. Command. And yet Jesus didn't divide his disciples up into Mr. Command and Mr. Visionary and Mr. Steady. He gave the commands to them and he, being their master and example, their teacher, their leader, their strong leader, he also stooped down and washed their feet. He didn't demonstrate macho strength in doing that. That activity was something that a servant would do. And yet, Debbie Pearl says that the Mr. Command Man expects his wife to wait on him hand and foot, you know, like be his servant. And yet, Jesus, in, his, in the example of what a leader is, he says, if I, being your master, wash your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. He told them all to do likewise, whether you can identify them as a Mr. Command or Mr. Visionary or Mr. Steady. They're all to be servants. So I don't really care what so-called type of man someone claims to be or what Debbie Pearl thinks a man is. There is absolutely zero excuse for a lack of maturity and humility. And the Bible demonstrates and Jesus as our example of a leader, as our head, as the Bible says, is servant of all. <laughs> so there is no excuse to respect a Mr. Command in Debbie's universe. Not only that, it demonstrates no love. Yes. And I think that when Christ laid down his life for all, he, mm. you know, like you gave the example of washing the disciples' feet. There's numerous scenarios in scripture where Jesus is showing his love for people by doing mm. servant type yes. acts. <laughs> and I think that when it's a husband and wife, when they love each other, mm. they automatically yes. serve each other. Yes. <laughs> and it's not this, oh, that's so beneath me type of attitude. It's, oh, I want to help you because I love you so much. Like, mm. you don't think about that as, oh, that's not my job. That's your job. When you love each other in a healthy marriage, you're going to help each other. And I just feel like the Mr. Command and, I mean, just even all types <laughs> yes. that she points out there, it's lacking actually how God says husbands need mm. to love their wives. And I'm not sure what I'm missing from that part, but shouldn't we be focusing on what God actually tells us yes, to do as husband and exactly. wife? <laughs> and we love each other, we respect each other, and we work together. <laughs> Paul or Peter never say, Mr. Command Man, do this. Mr. Visionary, do this. Mr. Steady, do this. It's just, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. <laughs> it doesn't matter what type you are. Here is what you are to do as a husband. Just like Jesus told his disciples, this is what you are to do as a disciple, as a leader. You be servant. Just as Jesus says about the Gentiles exercise authority over each other 
But it will not be so with you, for who he that is greatest among you, let him be your servant. So, Mr. Command Man, the best thing you know, <laughs> for a Mr. Command Man to do is to be the servant. And so, yeah, there you go. There's the biblical example for what Mr. Command Man is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Here's some more biblical examples that would get rid of this idea of Mr. Command Man and so on. Peter exhorted, all the elders of the church. He didn't divide them into three types of men. He said in 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. So, an example to the flock would be a servant leader. Peter didn't exhort based on the type of man. All the elders are to have certain characteristics, such as, you know, not being a striker, a brawler, as we see in 1 Timothy 3.3. According to Paul, all elders shouldn't be arrogant. They all need to control their tempers and be hospitable. Titus also, in Titus 1, 7 through 8, Paul says to Titus, For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, or as you could say, not arrogant, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. Um, So, (laughs) no... (laughs) No types of man need apply. If you're going to be an elder in the church, as examples of what Christians should be, they should have all these characteristics. (laughs) There's no exceptions or things granted for a Mr. Command Man at all. And what about the fruit of the Spirit here? What did the Apostle Paul say about the flesh, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit? Let's see if Mr. Command Man and Mr. Visionary and even Mr. Steady live up to this. Galatians 5.14 For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, yeah. (laughs) So does Mr. Command Man love his neighbor or his wife as himself by expecting her to wait on him hand and foot? And, you know, what are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. (laughs) That's the fruit of the Spirit. And as, as in, if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, this is the fruit thereof. Um, you know, the description of a Mr. Command Man expecting his wife to wait on him hand and foot is of one who is blatantly disobedient to the scriptures. He isn't loving his neighbor as himself, and, you know, he isn't uh, exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. So, types of men, as Debbie categorizes, need not apply to the commands of scripture. You're so cute. (laughs) You're very passionate about that. And like, I just love that because I think that it's so true what you're saying that we need to look at God's word and what it's telling us and that we can see these are the characteristics that Christ expects of us. 
and that we need to strive for. And I mean, just as we teach our children, it's like, I'm not sure how we can as parents expect our children to exhibit like the fruit of the spirit Mm -hmm. and show kindness and help their siblings out or obey their parents. If the husband and wife are not portraying that for their children, Mm -hmm. how confusing that must be for kids when they're seeing the father or the husband acting in such a way as to belittle and disrespect and put down the wife how is that going to teach our sons to treat their future wives and how is that going to teach self-worth in our girls it just seems like when you put into that perspective the bigger picture that we have little children that are watching us and they're learning and they they are very smart when they can perceive the relationship between the husband and wife, their parents, and also what we're telling them. And especially when we're teaching them about God's word and how important it is for them to live by the scriptures and by those principles. I don't know. I just (laughs) think it has to be confusing for them when we're saying one thing and doing another. Exactly. And so we are, and you know, it's going to get worse from here as we look at things, (laughs) but okay. You have an abusive husband or one who's not respecting his, his wife and his children. You think children obey your parents and how would it be an example to the children if the husband's not fulfilling his role as protector? And if the wife can't stand up, she can't teach the children what's right because she could be bad-mouthing her husband So you know, in the process. How is that an example to the children? Are they going to grow up to be confused if the wife, the only weapon in her arsenal is smiling and flirting, hoping that she can steer the husband in the right direction? All the happiness, allegedly, in the world is not going to solve the problem for how the children are going to perceive things if they can't get the proper instruction from their mother if their father is not living up to the Bible. So I want to mention, before we get to something really juicy here, (laughs) we mentioned the two become one flesh. And that's important to this whole idea of what Debbie talks about with the role of the wife as a helpmeet. And so the two become one flesh. What does that mean? We talked about this, that the two minds are together. They learn about each other. They support each other. God designed a marriage such that there are two involved. And so if God designed the marriage that way, You think that when he gives the commands to husband and wife, that they are to be taken together. For instance, when God says, wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives, we don't think of them as just being merely separate or mutually exclusive commands. God designed marriage as one unit. You know, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 talks about how when a man loves his wife as his own body and the body of Christ is the mystery in which Christ loved the church and the church is his very own body, that's how integrally linked together, related together husband and wife are. They are one flesh. 
And so, as being one flesh, shouldn't we think of the admonitions for husbands and wives toward each other really to be one unit? They go together. And so, can a marriage work if only the wife is obeying the Bible and the admonitions to the wives to love their husbands? Or if it's just the wives submitting to the husbands? Or is if it's just the husbands loving their wives? <laughs> a successful marriage depends on the two being one flesh and the two fulfilling their role in marriage. You can't have a glorious marriage or a heavenly marriage if it's just wife submit to your husbands or if it's just husband love your wife. You know, it's got to be both. That's why every time you see these commands, they're always together. There's no epistle to the wives or epistle to the husband. It's like husbands do this, wives do this because they go together. What do you think, sweetheart? God's recipe for a heavenly marriage, as Debbie would describe, depends on both of these being taken together, not in isolation. Yes, and I think that, yeah, the key to a glorious marriage is just reading what God's word says. And like you mentioned, he tells us very clearly and quite a few times what we need to do as husbands and wives. And I think that is how we can achieve a glorious marriage. (laughs) It's just by following God's word. Mm -hmm. Both. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. And also just realizing that, all right, we are responsible for our own choices and our own decisions. So, you know, if a husband does decide to leave the marriage, like the woman has no control over that. You cannot chain your husband (laughs) into the house so you can stay married and hope that eventually he will fall in love with you again if you keep smiling at him. I mean, there's really no way you can control each other. And I think that Hmm. scripture even talks about that where, was that in 1 Corinthians where it talks about the the wife's body is not her own? Yes, that's also 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There's a lot there about marriage there. Yeah, the husband, the wife has no power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise, the husband has no power of his own body, but the wife. Yeah, so, and it's, there's an equality there, Yeah. Yeah, so I think there's just so much that in scripture where it's like, okay, it takes both of you to be in communication and both of you to come together and work on your marriage. (laughs) Yes. I don't know. (laughs) Yes, definitely, sweetheart. You know, you can't have a heavenly marriage by just a wife trying to manipulate a bad, erring husband behind the scenes and smiling and so on. You know, the key to a glorious marriage is not one sided. (laughs) I know the book is by a wife to wives, but (laughs) you can't say that the key to making a marriage work lies squarely in the lap of the wife, you know, that ignores God's design for marriage, that it's the two become one flesh. And if one is not involved in that, then all the effort in the world by the other is not going to make it work. So, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Truth Espresso, this part two of our review of Debbie Pearl's book, Created to Be His Helpbeat. And we're not done with that yet. 
Um, We're not done with what Debbie Pearl has to say about the role of the wife toward her husband. So if you like this, I hope you stay tuned to the next episode because, as I keep saying, it's going to get a little bit farther down the rabbit hole from here. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 